Hello and welcome to Peach Pod, a Georgia politics podcast. My name is Kyle Hayes and I am your host. And on today's podcast, we are going to share an interview with you that I did with Sarah Tyndall Gazelle. She's a candidate for State House in House District 45 in the Sandy Springs and East Cobb area. And we thought that Sarah would be a great person to talk to following the really messy administration of the primary elections on June 9th. Sarah is the former voter protection director for the state Democratic Party, and she's paid close attention to issues regarding the administration of elections going back to the 2018 cycle. Sarah was also dragged into this really wild episode right at the conclusion of the 2018 election when then-Secretary of State Brian Kemp accused state Democrats of trying to hack the voter registration system. So we talked to her about that, about what she thinks needs to be done to have a smoother election day in November, along with some of the other issues that she is running on in her campaign for the state house. So without further ado, I will turn it over to my conversation with Sarah Tyndall Gazelle, Democratic candidate for state house in House District 45. Sarah Tyndall Gazelle, welcome to the podcast. Good morning. I'm so happy to be here, Kyle. It's really excited. Before we get into our discussion of some of these big issues that policymakers are facing in Georgia that you would be facing if you uh, are to be in the state house next year, let's get to know you a little bit. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and how it led to you running for the state house? Sure, sure. Um, I'm I'm a mom of two teenage girls. I live in in the Atlanta suburbs and. Before I uh, launched this campaign, I was the voter protection director for the Democratic Party of Georgia. Um, And I was led to that role after having spent most of my career doing democracy promotion and conflict resolution all over the world, um, mostly with the Carter Center for many, many years. One of the things I wanted to dive in on here, uh, based on on that expertise of yours, are issues around voting in the state. Um, this has obviously been something that's been at the top of the headlines uh, for quite some time now for the last couple of election cycles. It feels like throughout the 2018 cycle, you were the full-time voter protection director for the state Democratic Party. In that time, what did you learn about the deficiencies of Georgia's administration of elections? I think fundamentally what I learned was that um, election officials, by and large, uh, at the at the state level, don't want to make it easy for eligible voters to cast their ballot. I mean, it, it, there are barriers at every single level in Georgia from uh, the way the laws are written to make sure that people get removed from voter rolls as quickly as possible so that they can't stay registered, to um, the, the systems that are set up, to, you know, they, they some of the laws give on one hand and take uh, with the other hand, especially with regard to absentee ballots. Uh, there's very little to promote the use, even though we have no excuse absentee balloting, and then there are barriers put in place there. Um, and absolutely no consistency across counties, even though we have a centralized system where the, the state dictates how elections are supposed to be administered. And yet you have 159 counties, so you have 159 standards that you have to meet as a voter. So um, the, the barriers are just 
across the board here. And it was incredibly frustrating to see that. So right at the end of the 2018 election, I remember your name being brought into this episode where then Secretary of State Brian Kemp accused state Democrats of a failed hacking attempt on the voter registration system. A recent report from the GBI found that there was no basis for this claim by Kemp. Can you tell us a little bit more about what happened in this situation? And did it have any impact on your view of whether election administration by the Secretary of State has been weaponized for partisan gains? <laughs> well, I, I had already believed that based on um, the eight years prior to that election, how many times people were were investigated for no reason, um, prosecuted multiple times, um, only to ultimately be found that they had done nothing wrong, but nonetheless, they had lost their their livelihoods and, and their lifestyles due to, due to this. Um, so I already had the, the notion that election administration was weaponized, but specifically what happened uh, in on November, I guess it was November 3rd or 4th, of 2018, we received a report from a from a voter that there may be vulnerabilities on the the voter registration website. Well, I'm an attorney. I'm not a a, a computer security specialist, so I had no idea um, whether or not these claims were valid at all. So I forwarded the email um, to a couple of Georgia Tech professors understanding that you know, Georgia Tech's a public university, so these are state uh, representatives, there's, there's state employees, and one of the two professors I forwarded it to had been named by the Secretary of State as his sort of personal cybersecurity specialist on a panel that was evaluating new election systems, right? Not trying to hide the ball, I just, I didn't want to raise an alarm or raise a flag if this was not, um, if, if these claims were unfounded, uh, I got an email back saying, um, yeah, this looks, this looks like it could be bad. Uh, we forwarded it to the appropriate people. And I just, I didn't think twice about it. 12 hours later, six, 18 hours later, all of a sudden there are blaring headlines in the newspaper that uh, the Georgia Democrats are being accused of, of a, a, an attempted hack. And at first I, didn't even relate the two incidents, right? A forwarded email, attempted hacking. And then we figured out that that's what it had to be. And then we were able to sort of backtrack through some other media reports exactly what had happened. Um, and it was, I'm still flabbergasted that the person who was on the ballot and so who had every vested interest in weaponizing and politicizing what was going on was still in charge of overseeing the, the elections. First of all, that's, that is, is still to me um, absolutely appalling and, and undemocratic, but to, but to weaponize some, something that was literally trying to help identify a vulnerability and protect people's data. Um, yeah, it was, it, it still upsets me deeply that that happened. So the problems have continued uh, since that 2018 election. The administration of the state primaries on June 9th uh, was a mess, to describe it charitably. Um, what needs to happen between now and November to ensure that we don't have a similar disaster on our hands during this year's general election? 
So June 9th happened, um, and many of us had been predicting that the rollout would be exactly as it was, an, an absolute unmitigated disaster. And that's because the secretary of, the new Secretary of State invested 104 million taxpayer dollars into a brand new system that was incredibly complicated. Um, they were late in the rollout, late getting the, the machinery out, and then COVID happened. And the only training that the Secretary of State's office provided to the 159 counties that were expected to implement these elections was a four-hour video. They, uh, they did not properly test this equipment. They did not support counties with the, the level of support that they needed. Cobb County, my home county, where most of this district where I'm running lies in, um, had one technician for 800,000 voters uh, and, and to, to support hundreds of election day precincts. And that's all the Secretary of State would do. So, so it's clear that the problem is systemic. It's not just one or two counties like the narrative is trying to suggest. It is, it is a complete abject failure on the part of the Secretary of State to provide sufficient training and sufficient technical support to the counties and to the poll workers out there who are busting their butt trying to make sure that people can vote. Um, I was able to watch it as it progressed because I was volunteering with voter protection uh, that day. So, you know, we knew from 705 this was going to be a disaster. And it's all about it's it's about training. It's about technical support. It's about making sure that the counties have enough poll workers out there, um, poll workers who are not an average age of 70 and older, which is where we generally are in Georgia. And these folks are now in the high risk category for COVID. So you've got a cascading failures uh, on top of one another. Um, it's about the counties committing the resources and, and spending the time now to make sure that these, these poll workers are recruited on board, trained properly, and they have locations to set up properly, um, and that they deliver their, their machinery on time. We had two counties, at least, that I am aware of, that literally didn't have their their voting equipment delivered by 7 a.m. on Tuesday, June 9th, election morning. So that's on that's on the counties. But but it's also because the, the secretary of state bought a system and didn't prepare the counties how to implement it properly. Longer term, getting beyond just this November's election, what needs to be done to provide more robust protection to the right to vote in Georgia? I know, and, I, and I'm sure you're aware, you know, there have been a lot of people and organizations involved in filing legal challenges to individual problems with the administration of elections, things like the exact match policy or who can be an interpreter or help people cast ballots, sort of smaller scale issues like those. To some extent, these efforts strike me as somewhat inadequate to a larger problem facing voting in Georgia. What kind of changes do we need long term? So the single biggest change that would help make sure that people who are eligible to cast a ballot can cast a ballot would be same day registration. I've seen thousands and thousands of cases where somebody thought they were registered or eligible to, to vote, they, but they had been um, caught up in exact match or they were, they were um, purged from the lists because they hadn't voted in a certain number of years. If they had the ability to go to a polling station and say, I am eligible, here's the proof. I have a, a, a bill that shows that this is where I live. I have my driver's license proving this is who I am. 
they should be able to cast a ballot, period. That would resolve at least half of the issues that we see on election day where voters are turned away um, for what I believe are specious reasons, but, but the system is designed to do that right now. Um, that would break down a lot of those barriers. It would help um, resolve the, the voter purge issue. Uh, some other things are, right now I have to send in two separate applications to apply for an absentee ballot for the runoff and for the November 3rd election. So all in, in all this year, I would have sent in four absentee ballot applications to get four separate absentee ballots if, if we'd had from the presidential preference primary to the state primary to the runoff to the election. And then there may be another runoff, right? Five separate pieces of paper that a county has to process and a county has to go through. That's ridiculous. It's a waste of my time. It's a waste of county money. It's a waste of taxpayer dollars. I should be able to send in one application and just get all the absentee ballots for the whole cycle if that's how I want to vote. Um, it's my choice as a voter. Georgia law makes it makes it available, but they make it very difficult on the counties and on, on the voter. So that's another easy fix. Voting precincts change, even in a normal year, especially in, in, in these, these urban and suburban counties, um, polling places have to move for one reason or another. The people, the building owner doesn't wanna have voters in there anymore. Uh, demographics change, populations shift. Uh, so it makes it very confusing. And if you show up to your wrong precinct on election day, you have to vote a provisional ballot. Well, we could move to a vote center model, which is what we use in early vote, which is you have a couple of, of areas where you go and it doesn't matter where you're, you're registered, you can cast your ballot, you get your right ballot and you vote right there. And I know a lot of the counties are really pushing hard for this, but there's no appetite to make it easier to vote in the state legislature. Um, ultimately, the only way we'll get any of this is to flip the state house. There will not be the appetite to pass laws to make it easier to vote as long as Republicans are in the majority, because they know when everyone votes, Democrats win. So let's talk about some other subjects here. Cities across Georgia and across the country have been the site of demonstrations against police misconduct in recent weeks following the deaths of George Floyd and Rayshard Brooks and others at the hands of police. What do lawmakers in Atlanta need to do, the kinds of policies that need to be passed or the kinds of messages that need to be sent? What do lawmakers need to do to solve this problem? Well, right now, they uh, the legislature just went back into um, session this past Monday, and they're negotiating on a hate crimes bill. Georgia's one of four states that still doesn't have a hate crimes bill. And I'm not sure that they're going to even be able to pass that right now, which is absolutely appalling. Um, and it just shows how how stuck we are in our partisan positions. Uh, and, and it's horrifying. Um, to really change the way police is, is working in our, in our communities and, and, and create more accountability. Um, accountability is actually really key. Accountability and transparency. So passing laws that require um, plenty of justification and, and reporting and statistics and data on use of force and when, when the police use force. 
Um, we've got to really restrict use of lethal force and, and define that. Um, we need to revoke our stand your ground law that allows people to use deadly force without uh, recourse to retreat. Um, that's, that in and of itself might have saved Ahmed Arbery's life. And, and that's very well documented. There's a lot of data that demonstrates that, that homicides increase with stand your ground laws. So that's a critical law to, to pass. Um, our citizens arrest law, again, you know, we, we, we are promoting vigilante justice with, with all of this. Um, there's, there's a whole package of criminal justice reforms that Democrats have proposed and, and had already ready to go uh, on Monday morning. Um, I am not optimistic that they will be passed in this session, but we're not gonna let it lie. Democrats and, and activists and, and, and the community at large is ready for change. I live in a suburb and there's a street corner a mile away from here where we've got people out there every single day with signs, honking horns. Um, every community in Georgia is ready to change right now. Um, and, and there's a huge pressure. So I expect that maybe not this year, but next year, when the face of the, the state legislator, legislature looks much different from how it looks now, uh, we'll see some substantive change. Um, so another big issue that the legislature is dealing with upon their return last week is the budget crunch that the state is going to face following the uh, pandemic. Uh, so last week, Senate appropriate Last week, the Senate Appropriations Committee approved a budget proposal that cut 11% in states in state spending, including over a billion dollars in education spending and more than $100 million in cuts to the state agency that provides services to people with disabilities and mental health conditions. Can you give us your view of how the legislature amidst this recession caused by this pandemic? It, it's certainly a somewhat unique situation, but can you give us your view of how the legislature should shape the state's budget in these circumstances? Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, e even before the pandemic, when we were at the quote unquote height of an economic boom, we still hadn't reached per capita spending on uh, Georgia citizens um, to the, the, the levels where they were before the 2008 recession, right? So we were already at a bare bones budget as it was. We had only fully funded our schools, uh, meeting the, the formula that was established in the 1980s um, for two years. And now we're looking at these, these incredibly damaging budget cuts when in fact, there are lots of revenue sources that we could be considering right now to try to ameliorate some of these, these problems. Georgia has some of the lowest tobacco taxes in the country. All we would need to do is raise it to the median tobacco tax level. We're not talking about raising it to the highest levels, just the, the median across the country. And that would save, that would bring in approximately $500 million. We could cut those, those slashes to our education budget in half if we were able to do that one simple step. Uh, there are there were study groups that looked at some of the tax incentive programs that we have um, 
like the the film industry tax credit uh, incentive and and it's clear that these are not there's no oversight over them right now um they're being uh we're, we're basically leaving money on the table and not getting the jobs and the the investment that we had expected and in fact the, the whole program was designed around that um there's there's a lot of recovery cost recovery that we could have if we actually instituted some real oversight into that program. Don't get me wrong. It's I, I love the fact that we're, we are welcoming these industries in and we are creating incentive structures for them, but there's got to be accountability for that. We are still leaving millions and millions of dollars on the table through these tax incentives that allow people to, to donate money to private school scholarships. Again, no oversight. We have no idea where the money is going, how it's being spent, whether it's actually meeting the the objectives of the program, which is to to allow school choice for needy families. Well, the neediest families don't have access to this because they still can't afford the the private school tuition, and there are no private schools available in the rural areas where we really have public schools that are struggling. So we're leaving again millions of dollars on the table for that. Um, that 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 those tax dollars should be going into the public coffers and being used to support our public schools. We have a constitutional obligation to provide robust, high-quality public education, and these programs undermine the, the the Georgia State Constitution and they undermine our schools, they undermine our children, undermine our future. So there are lots of ways we could be looking um, more holistically at, at revenue sources and at the budget in ways that are not going to be so damaging for basically a, another generation, if it's anything like what we've seen in the past. Yeah, let's talk about this in a longer term context, this issue as well. You know, these cuts, if they're adopted anywhere within the ballpark that they've been proposed or likely to create a drag on the economy for months or even years. Analysts in Washington believe that we'll have elevated unemployment levels through at least the end of 2021. And as you mentioned, you know, we've kind of been here before. We cut the state's budget to the bone during the Great Recession. You mentioned underfunding the education funding formula for so long, spending less per person than we did in 2008 in state funds. You know, this approach to spending has put a drag on the economy has made it has made the growth of sort of middle income jobs less robust following the great recession of 2008 and you know I'm struck that we're sort of in a similar position again moving forward in in sort of a broader uh picture view of economic recovery what kinds of like big changes in outlook or or sort of an ideological approach do you think need to be made to support a more robust economic recovery this time around? Well, you know, the single the single decision that we could make that would make uh, the biggest change across lives and livelihoods is expanding Medicaid. Um, and I should have mentioned that in my last answer because 500,000 Georgians would, would have access to affordable, high-quality health care. It would create 50,000 jobs and it would bring billions of dollars back into our economy. We're literally just letting it go right now, uh, saying, no, we don't want your money. We're going to spend the same amount of money uh, to cover 50,000 Georgians through this, this waiver program. 
Um, that's, that's the single best thing that we can do to promote both our economy, um, our, our job growth, and, and the health of our citizens. And I think COVID has really, again, uncovered, laid bare the inequities, the structural inequities that we already suffer from in Georgia, which had been obvious with our maternal mortality crisis as well, right? When, when we're the worst in the country with maternal mortality, um, but three to four times as many black women as white women die from childbirth related causes. So the, there has been a tiny bit of progress on that. They have extended Medicaid coverage for, uh, for women who give birth, but it is, it is wholly inadequate to the task. And, and again, it's not just about healthcare, it's about robust economic growth in Georgia. Um, healthy people work more and better. I mean, it's, it, it's pretty basic. But, you know, as, as we look longer term, we also have to look holistically at what's going to be good for Georgia, right? Georgia has no plan for sea rise, sea level rise. We, we, we are in denial of the fact that um, our coast, coastline is going to change dramatically over the next 50 years. So when we're developing long-term plans, we have to be looking at how our growth is going to affect our environment and how our environment is going to affect our growth. Um, some of the biggest growth industries in the, in the past decade have been green technologies, green energy. We, we're seeing, we were seeing signs of that in, in South Georgia where we're getting solar farms in there, right? This is, so there are opportunities that, that we have, have missed and we have bypassed. We eliminated the tax, tax credit for electric vehicles. Well, why don't we do that? Why, why are you going to disincentivize a, a growth industry uh, that is going to help our help our air quality. It's it's going to encourage more green opportunities. It's so it, that's we need to be looking at how our investments have longer term impact. Um, another big big issue of mine is is broadband uh, because you know our schools had to resort to online learning across the state overnight. Um, some, of the, some of the school systems were incredible. They were able to flip on a switch. Some school systems literally couldn't because there's no broadband. Uh, and, and broadband is, is an economic engine. It, when there's a, this sort of infrastructure, you've got a, a, a much greater willingness of companies that rely on this infrastructure to invest and develop in areas where real estate's gonna be less expensive. But they're not going to go there if there's no infrastructure, if they don't have broadband capabilities. And they're, I could go on for ages. Um, and I know that's not the, the point of this. So sorry. <laughs> no, that's okay. I mean, these are the problems that we're, uh, you know, thinking about and talking about in our politics all the time. I, I yeah. know we've uh, tackled some challenging issues in this discussion, but are there any other issues you'd like to touch on before we go? Well, um, so th th there's so much opportunity in Georgia, right? We are the the eighth largest state in terms of population, ninth largest state in terms of GDP, and yet so many quality of life indicators. We are at the bottom, right? Um, we are one of the worst states in terms of healthcare coverage, we and and, and insurance coverage. The worst state for maternal mortality. Um, 46th for access to healthcare. 
um, 36 in terms of uh, per pupil investment in public education, right? We have the, the opportunity, we have the ability to be so much more for everyone across this state. Um, and it's all based on, on policy choices. What do we choose? How do we, how do we envisage ourselves going forward? Um, when, when we elect people into government that don't believe in government, you're basically setting yourself up to fail. Uh, we need to be electing leaders that, that believe in investing in the people of Georgia, especially at a time where investment is going to become much more difficult and we've, and we are facing long-term underemployment and unemployment. Um, we have to have people in office that that believe that investing in these in the people of Georgia and and in the infrastructure of the state is is going to improve the lives of every single person here. And that's 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 why I'm running for office. That's why I'm running to flip the seat um, and running to flip the state house because I believe that Georgians deserve better than what we've been getting. Well, Sarah, if listeners would like to learn more about your campaign for the state house, how could they do that? Um, my website is Gazelle for Georgia, G A A Z A L for Georgia, all spelled out. dot com. I have uh, what my campaign manager would suggest is an overly active Twitter presence uh, at, at Tyndall Sarah, uh, and, and um, I'm on Facebook. So I and I always answer my own questions. All right. Well, Sarah Tindall Gazelle is a candidate for the State House and House District 45. Sarah, thanks so much for joining the podcast today. Absolutely. My pleasure. That's our show for today. If you like what you heard, subscribe to Peach Pod. Thanks, as always, to our fantastic interns, Olivia Bauer, Peyton Childers, and Kelly Dobso for their help researching this episode. Until next time, take care, y'all.